Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming and um, making this possible. At least 50% is your credit. I'll try to do my part here. So tonight we're going to talk about ego, false ego and, and real ego. So a new twist perhaps because people are in spiritual circles like this fairly familiar with the idea that the ego is a problem. So there's much talk about doing away with the ego. But at least human logic uh, leads us to question who will do away with the ego. If we are to do away with our ego, then who will do it? <laughs> because ego, of course, means identity. So it, it, it leads us to conjecture that uh, there has to be some real identity to do away with this uh, false identity. And um, interestingly enough, this, uh, the sacred text gives some support to this idea, considerable support to this idea, if they're scrutinized carefully. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. Sacred texts are, of course, very important. Uh, often it's said that um, the answer lies beyond the book. And it's true, and as much as the answer lies in applying ourselves in accordance with the tenets of such sacred texts that uh, have been spoken and written and inspired and passed down, manifest by extraordinary persons, realizers. And while the language may have limitation as it, as it does to convey something that's beyond speech and thought, and the logic may have limitations also, Nonetheless, the logic and the words that people, great realizers, choose to use to express that experience that lies beyond words and logic to us who live in the world of words and thoughts and so forth, that language has some power, the language that they chose. So, books, somewhat important, such as Bhagavad Gita. So I want to speak a little bit on this topic by citing a, a text from the Gita. And um, as I say, the great body, if you will, of sacred literature gives a lot of support to this idea that there is a real identity and there is a false identity. And the mere slaying, if you will, or doing away with the false identity is only half of the equation of spiritual life. But that's nonetheless kind of uncommon uh, in my experience, this thought in spiritual circles. And the reason for that largely is that the sacred texts they deal with, um, they're really centered in, in some respects on in common sense. And common sense, as you may know, is uncommon. We're a little, spiritually speaking, in material life, a little if not a little, a lot, off track, so to speak. And the tracks, if you will, that our life runs on in this world are exploitation and renunciation, in a sense. In other words, we try to enjoy things, acquire things, dominate over things, the world, exploit it for the purpose that... Uh, we conceive of within the world of our mind, how we, what we think we are and how we think we'll be happy. and we, we take, if you will, from the world and try to add on to our life to be happy. So taking is exploitation. And then there, the other side of it is that after we take, often we find that it's, well, we didn't get what we were looking for, so we, we give it up. It's called like boga, means to enjoy, and enjoy, and tiag means to give up, boga and tiag. You do something, you think it will make you happy, and then you, it doesn't. You buy something, you paid for it by the credit card, and uh, it didn't turn out to be what it was, but you have a bill to pay for it nonetheless. And maybe it breaks down even. And so you reject it, you renounce it, you, you want to give it up. And so 
life is moving kind of on these two tracks. We, we acquire and we reject, we, we exploit and, and we renounce, boga and tyag. So to try to uh, take from the world or try to get away from the world. So these two tendencies are really material tendencies to come in the middle of all of this. This is what the scripture talks about when it speaks about love, bhakti, which is really the center of all these sacred texts. It's the heart of it. <laughs> what else would the heart of the sacred text be about? But love. Love brings a harmony to action and to, to movement, to taking and, and, and to renouncing. But because material life runs on these two tracks of taking from the world or trying to move away from the world, frustrated with it, when we apply ourselves to the text, we tend to focus on aspects of the text that talk about these things, like the path of action, karma, the path of jnana, the path of knowledge. And we miss what's like kind of staring us in the face, like the nose on our face, bhakti, the central focus of the scripture. So, it is there, in that heart of the scripture, that this uh, discussion about an emphasis on the, the, uh, the, uh, our real ego, our real identity, as opposed to our false identity, takes place. And um, so, in good company, if we hear from the scriptures, we can get focused on this. It's really in our interest to find ourselves, after all. And um, so, real ego and false ego. And in brief, it, it should be, I think, understood that catching on, oh, the first symptom that we're catching on will manifest in the form of letting go. But catching on to what it's really about and finding ourself really in spiritual life, and that means to say developing our real ego, which is in many respects the antithesis of our false ego. How will that manifest? That we're beginning to, to catch on, that we're beginning to, um, that the real ego is developing, how will it show itself? The first way in which the real ego will show itself, that I'm catching on, that I'm getting it, is that it will manifest in the form of letting go. All of that, that really adds up to my false ego, my false sense of self, all of my attachments, in other words. We are our attachments. So this is where the Gita really begins. The very first chapter, it appears to be a, mm, a segue into the book, if you will, which is a philosophical, theological treatise from a book, the larger book that the Gita is found in, that's um, more about religion and, and morality and, and righteousness in a worldly sense than it is about experiential spiritual life, how to be a good human rather than to consider are we human ultimately or are we something more than that? Is human just a dress that we're now wearing? So Gita begins to speak in that direction until first chapter is kind of a segue from a treatise on, on morals and ethics and righteous living in the world in the context of a, of a very consuming and interesting uh, romantic, political and uh, intriguing story, segue from that into a philosophical treatise. So the first chapter is full of these names of the different characters and so forth, and it sets the setting, uh, gives us the setting, it's a battlefield that this conversation that the Gita consists of uh, took place on. Um, in fact, at that time in the great text Mahabharata that the Gita is a chapter of, everyone is sitting on the edge of their seats. The author has very wonderfully got everyone's attention. With, I would say it's like a romantic and political novel of intrigue, and you're just really on the edge of your seat. What's going to happen? The war is just about to happen. It's like a civil war. And, uh, and here comes Bhagavad Gita. Now, everyone's paying close attention. And here comes the wisdom of the te secret esoteric wisdom of the text. So the first chapter is, um, like I said, being a segue, it, it tends to uh, appear to be more about historical content and something that you kind of get through quickly in order to get on with the rest of the text. But that's not entirely the case. In fact, 
Here in the first chapter, in the very first place that Krishna speaks to his friend, the warrior, Arjuna, all of the thing is given practically uh, in the text I want to cite. The furthest reach in spiritual pursuit and the, the full the, the sense that we have a personality of our own as an individual, even, to realize, and a false personality to retire in the process of that, uh, that realization. Two sides of the equation, getting rid of the false ego and grounding oneself in one's real identity. And um, what's really um, comes to bear here in the text I want to cite right in the first chapter is so important that if we don't get it here, the rest of the Gita's really, we won't get it either. It's just an, it becomes an intellectual exercise. So what is said? Sanjayavacha evam uktva vishikesho gurukeshena bharata senayoro bayor madhye stapaitva rotottamam vishmadrona pramukhatta sarvesham cha mahachitam uvacha parta pashyaitam samavetan kurun iti. Very nice uh, poetry. Two texts, 24 and 25. Sanjay, who's the king's uh, minister, counselor, he's a mystic. The king is being told the story of what's going on on the battlefield. The king's blind, materially and spiritually blind. And Sanjay is, has mystic vision, and he can see in his heart what's taking place on the battlefield. He's conveying that to the king. So Sanjay Vacha, Sanjay said, O Dhritarashtra, Dhritarashtra is the king's name, the blind king. Rishikesh is a name for Krishna, one of the many names for Krishna. Rishikesh, very significant here. Rishikesh means who the controller, the master of the senses. Keep that in mind. Who is the master of the senses? Rishikesh, having been ordered by Gudakesh, Gudakesh is another name for Arjuna. It means, Guda means uh, sleep and Asha means like Lord. So he, he was able to conquer sleep. He was a very extraordinary person. Arjuna was a warrior and he could, he was able to, he was he said to have been able to conquer sleep. Not an easy thing to do. So Rishikesh, having been ordered by Gudakesh, Arjuna, the student here is ordering the teacher, who is Krishna, who has become the chariot driver of Arjuna. Rishikesh, having been ordered by Gudakesh, Arjun, pulled the best of chariots between the two armies, stopping in front of Bhishma and Drona in the midst of the other rulers of the world. Krishna said that then to him, just see Partha, all the Kurus assembled here. Doesn't sound too philosophical, but there's a lot of significance here for us. Important, very important. Uh, uh, verses. So, what is being said? Two people are mentioned here, Drona and Bhishma. And these are the two people who Krishna brought the warrior Arjun in his chariot. He was the chariot driver, Krishna. Arjun wanted to know, well, who's, who's out here? Let me see what, what armies I have to contend with in this battle. So just before the battle, so he drew the chariot up and stopped it right in front of Bhishma and Drona. They were on the opposition, the side with which the warrior Arjun had to fight. He stopped in front of these two people, and then Krishna said to Arjun, Partha he called him, which is a family name, addresses him in terms of his family affection from his maternal side. He said, here you are. This is who you have to fight with. Check it out. It's significant that he stopped in front of Drona and Bhishma. Why? Because Drona was the teacher of Arjun. Arjun was a warrior, and Drona was his, his teacher in the military arts, in the Dhanur Ved, the Ved of military uh, science, archery, mystic kind of archery that is discussed in, in, in the Mahabharata. They had like water arrows and uh, fire arrows, and uh, it's very, uh, all kind of interesting. Um, weapons and whatnot. 
based on uh, archery with mantra, mantra to the arrow and so forth. Anyway, Arjuna was schooled by Drona in this art. And the implication here is that Drona was very, very dear to Arjuna. As a warrior, materially speaking, this was his livelihood, Arjuna. And so uh, this was like his professor. And in those days, the students would live with the professors who schooled them in, the, in their livelihood. And, uh, you know, India is uh, full of in Hinduism worship. Just, you can't, really can't get away from it. Everything's worship there. So the teacher of arts is uh, the art of, uh, here in this case is, was worshipable entity, if you will, by Arjuna. You know, knowledge is is not something that uh, you have to work for that. <laughs> People who have knowledge are not ready to just give it to anybody. They want to see somebody really is qualified to receive it and will take advantage of it. Will listen, take it to heart, and so forth. In times gone by, gurus didn't just weren't out there just collecting up people and so forth, begging people to join them. <laughs> Please join me. <laughs> Not like that. Mm -hmm. And now that they allowed their students to do that kind of thing. In fact, Guru's name would be kept silent out of respect. Now people like to beat other people over the head with their Guru's name. My Guru is so-and-so. He's great. And really they're saying, I'm great. I'm great. <laughs> you should join my Guru. I'm great. <laughs> so... This wasn't like that. And if people wanted knowledge from a teacher, then they might have to come and live there and, and, and milk cows for a year and just uh, clean up and, and so forth and, and so on. So, so Arjun was living with, uh, with Drona and learning the military science and so forth. And Drona was so affectionate to Arjun. I'll give you one instance to help you appreciate this, that Arjun was the best student of Drona, so to have a good student is just, I can tell you, it's, it's, it's wonderful. These days, people are often very um, leery about teachers, especially in spiritual circles. And uh, they say it's hard to find a good uh, guru. A good guru will tell you mm -hmm. it's hard to find a good student. So... It may be something in our attitude that doesn't allow us to find teaching that's really readily available. If Guru is teaching about God, representing God, the Absolute, do you think there's any limitation on the part of the Absolute to share itself with us? Hardly. The out of representatives or things to say or a clever way to present it? No. The lacking is, is in us. We should learn what it means to be a good student and adjust ourselves accordingly, then we may find teachers right next door. In fact, in every, before us at every moment, the whole environment is friendly in teaching us. But we are not in that, uh, able to keep ourselves, get ourselves in, but to speak of keep ourselves in, the teachable moment, if you will. So, Arjuna was such a great student that he was the best archer and Drona proclaimed as such. But he came across another fellow who wanted to be his student, although he wasn't qualified to be a student because he wasn't of the warrior class and so forth. And so, um, as was his prerogative, the teacher's prerogative, Drona denied him discipleship in military science. But he nonetheless wanted to be a student, so he made a clay image of Drona. And then he used to worship the clay image. And he became an extraordinary archer to the extent that one day Arjun and his teacher Drona were walking and a dog was barking and causing a disturbance. And this fellow happened to be right there. So he pulled out his bow and his arrow and he shot the, uh, the uh, dog <laughs> such that it, the arrow closed his mouth, like sewed it up. And they thought, what kind of archer is that? And there... Drona found this fellow who had previously approached him and asked to be his student. And he saw this fellow is like extraordinary in his worship, which has given him this, this, uh, this ability and knowledge, uh, art and so forth. And so he said, well, you, you turn out to be a good student even though I rejected you. There are larger issues involved here, but at any rate, Drona said to him, so if you consider yourself my student, then it's, it's known that the student 
should give a gift to the guru. After learning from the guru, the student should give back a gift. Guru Dakshin, it's called. So Drona said, yes, or Eklavya was his name, whatever you want, I'll give. So Drona said, well, give me your right thumb. So you can't shoot an arrow without a right thumb. You know, hold it like this. So he cut off his right thumb and gave it to Drona. Now, there's many things to be drawn from this, and I don't have the time to go into all of them, but relevant to the discussion, why did one reason that Drona did this, just one reason, was because of his affection for Arjuna. He wanted Arjuna to be the best archer. There were other reasons that, that may sound like a, like a bad reason, but uh, there were other important reasons if you look at the whole thing. But my point here only is this, he had a lot of affection for Arjuna. And Arjuna had a lot of affection for him, attachment for him. And Krishna had brought his chariot up and said, this is who you have to kill, Drona. And here's the other fellow, amongst all these people, these two as well, Bhishma. Who was Bhishma? Bhishma was a great warrior himself, but um, and warrior means generally a little bit worldly, but he took a vow early on in his life of celibacy, which was unheard of for the warrior sect, unheard of. He took a vow of celibacy because uh, his father wanted to marry um, a lady, and um, the lady was, I think, maybe daughter of a fisherman. And so the father of the daughter said, well, I don't want her to marry you because if she marries you, then her sons will not be heir to the throne because she's from a fisherman's family and, you know, this Bhishma, who's your other son of royal lineage, you'll give it to him. So Bhishma said, no, if my father wants to marry her, I, I take a vow that I won't become the, I won't become the king. So the father of the, of the daughter, fisherman himself, he said, well, that's not good enough. Then uh, Bhishma's sons will become. So Bhishma said, okay, I take a vow, I'll never have any children, I'll be celibate my whole life. And the god said, Bhishma. His name was Devarata, but the gods, this oracle that came from the sky, Bhishma, it's like heavy, it means, wow, that's a vow. Guy's a warrior, and and he's going to be celibate. I mean, it's one thing to live in a forest and be a sage and, and so forth, but you're in the world, and, and you're in the royalty, and, and there's beautiful women and things, and everybody's getting married and having parties, and and you're going to be in the midst of all that and be celibate. They said, that's heavy, Bhishma. So he became known as Bhishma. So although he was a warrior, and, um, and he was celibate, the Pandavas, Arjun had, f had four brothers. He was one of five brothers. But uh, their father had passed away, so Bhishma was the grandfather. He raised them. Now, you know, one of the benefits of being celibate, I can tell you, is that you don't have to raise children. <laughs> it may sound odd, but... Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, so he, he, although he was celibate as well, he raised children. So this is kind of a sacrifice on his part, and uh, he became the father, like just like the father of Arjun. So Krishna drew the chariot up and parked right next to these two people and said, you have to kill your teacher, you have to kill your, your father, practically. And my point here is only how dear these people were to Arjun. And Krishna saying, well, this is who you have to deal with. This is who you have to kill. So, of course, what he's really saying, he says, oh, Partha, you know, this is this is what you have to do. Partha again was a was a name that of Arjuna that pertained to his uh, mother's side of his identification, the son of so and so. Then he's the he's the son of Kunti, Prita. He's the student of Drona. He's raised by Bhishma. You understand me? This is who he is. This is his identity. It means that we are our I. Our sense of I arises out of our sense of my. Two-letter word, my, but it's a huge affair. Think about it. Whatever I identify with as mine, my, my house, my car, my son, my daughter, my father, my job, my country, this my is what my I, sense of I, is made out of. Materially speaking, in terms of our material identity or ego, it's made up of our desires, 
and our attachments. We're a daughter because we are, you know, we identified as with somebody who is our mother and father. We're a father because we are identi- we identify with someone as our daughter or son. We are. This is the point here. Our attachments, materially speaking. And what our Krishna is telling Arjuna by parking the chariot here is this, you've got to deal, you've got to dismantle. What this war really about is about is dismantling at the very beginning your false sense of I that is all based on your sense of my or mine. Because none of these things really belong to you. Can't keep them. And, oh, the teaching goes on, of course. You've had many fathers and many mothers. And also, the beginning, and here in the beginning of the Gita, it's stressed, if you want to know who you are, what you are, you have to start to distance yourself from what you think you are. Create some distance. Distance means what? To step back. To step back means to look at something objectively. When we're too close to a thing, we can't see it for what it is. It means when we're subjectively involved, we can't see it objectively, right? We have a bias. That prejudices our ability to understand the thing for what it is. We can't make an objective statement about it. We'll not be a credible witness. You understand? If we're a family member and we have some attachment and, and so forth. If the president is bought and paid for by some corporation, then what do we think? He doesn't represent us. He's paid for he, he, by them. You know, he's made by um, mobile, uh, you know, <laughs> Exxon or, or whatever it is, Texon, you know, Texon. So, this ego, identity, material identity, sense of I, it's all made up out of our sense of my our attachments. And Krishna is telling Arjuna, this, this has to be, this is what you have to slay. Not that he has to kill his teacher. Not that he has to really kill his, for all intents and purposes, father, Bhishma. But he has to kill his attachment to them that doesn't, and this is interesting because when we, when we speak about detachment like this, it sounds kind of like, well, gee, I mean, you know, he's got to be detached from his teacher, who he loves, and the teacher loves him, and his father, practically, who who he loves and loves him, well, what are you teaching? It sounds a little bit, um, a little kind of harsh. But if we explore really what detachment is about, we see that it's the, it's the first face, if you will, the beginning. It's where love begins to show itself. As I said, if we're catching on to what we really are, really, how will it show up first? It will show up in letting go. This has to be. If there were to be close to Bhagawan, really close, as we want to be, to God, we have to bridge the distance. How will we bridge the distance? We've created the distance by separate interest. There's no way around this. We have to pass through this. We have to pass through this. Janayati ashu vairagyam jnanam cha yad ahai come. If we're coming in that direction, really, of a spiritual identity, it has to show its face like this. Otherwise, it's more or less um, an intellectual exercise. This is practical. Distance from God means reverence. We have to pass through that. And how we pass through? By giving up the separate interest. So, our heart is full of separate interest. We are attached to people and things. What does that attachment mean? It means that we are, we're not able to stand on our own two feet. In other words, I like her because she makes me feel whole. I'm attached to him because the he helps to make me what I think I am. Uh, and I feel complete or better by that. So my relationship that is based on attachment doesn't allow me to be the full picture of what I am. And I'm taking something from another in order to feel whole myself. 
Now, when we become renounced and we become detached through knowledge, what happens? It's not that we, be, we don't like people anymore. No, this is the first phase of, of, of really starting to like and love people for what they are. We respect them for what they are. They're not a, just a, a body and a, a personality that's informed by impressions gathered through the senses. Through our senses we gather impressions of uh, tastes and sounds and sights and things that we hear and we like some, we don't like some and we have a certain kind of music we like and we have a certain kind of people we like and a certain type of attire that we like and so forth. What is all this? It's us, right? <laughs> that's our false sense of self that's informed merely by sensual input which is then computed in the mind in such a way as to determine I like this, I don't like that. A whole false identity is created of goods and bads, happies and sads, living in a world of duality and attachments. And these attachments are distancing us from the people we love. They're distancing us, distancing us, I should say for that matter, from the capacity to love really all things and all people. Universal love. If I love one, then, you know, if I love Jerusalem or Israel, then I, then I hate, uh, you know, Hezbollah and vice versa. Is it love or is it hate? Just depends which way you turn the coin. What about universal love? Loving all, you know, the full face of love. So this comes from, it starts to show its face uh, with detachment, with the knowledge that detachment corresponds with. In other words, we all want to be happy. That's what we want. We want to love and be happy. But when we, when we want enduring happiness, but when we seek it in relation to things that don't endure, we, we can expect to get disappointed. That's ignorance. Knowledge is that, well, things don't endure. So if I want enduring happiness, attachment to them is not in my interest. So you see, detachment is a corollary of knowledge, wisdom, understanding. And wisdom is also part of love, actually, real love. When you love, then you know what to do. Love is really the full expression of knowledge. So this detachment is not like mean-spirited, really, that we're talking about. Mm. The, you know, it's put in these terms. He had to kill his teacher, kill his, his, his grandfather who raised him. This was his task. It means to kill that which was causing Arjun to see two sides of the army my side and their side to transcend this duality and this identity that distanced Arjun from the capacity to express uh, universal love, if you will. So Krishna very expertly, without saying anything, just driving the chariot as Arjun had asked him to do between the two armies so that Arjun could see what he had to contend with he stopped it right in front of these two people that, that personified the greatest attachment of Arjun and said, well, here you are. This is what you have to deal with. You have to untangle yourself, disentangle yourself from this false identity. We have senses. Senses make up our body and we have a mind. And as I said earlier, through our senses we get input. It's related to the mind and the mind makes a decision about it in a basic sense. I like it, I don't like it and a whole identity is created there. I like her, so I'll marry her. I don't like him, so I won't marry him. This is my child, so I'll give more attention here. And that's somebody else's child, and if something happens to them, it might bother me, but not as much as if it happens to my child, and so forth. Krishna wants Arjuna to rise above this. He wants him to really love, and to be like all that he could possibly be, not a crippled sense of self derived from sense perception and attachments. Attachment is based on need, and a need means, well, weak. You want him to be strong. So you want him to step back now, see what you have to contend with. And this is what the whole battle is about, to unravel the false ego. But in the context of explaining this to Dhritarasa, the blind king, Sanjaya uses a nice word here, Rishikesh, named for Krishna. He said, oh, Rishikesh, he drew the chariot up here. Rishikesh, as I said earlier, means the master of the senses. So, our false identity is based on our senses' interaction 
with sense objects and the attachment that accrues from that. Like I said, we interact with certain objects, we find them pleasurable, we identify with them as good, others as bad, we avoid some, we, we embrace others, and we live in this little world of our minds, a very, very small, small world. And it's uncomfortable, too. And we are unreasonable in that we expect everybody else to live within it and be happy when we are not comfortable in it. And very much we conduct ourselves like this. We think people should see things the way we see things, <laughs> even though that's not making us happy. It's not making our hairs stand on end. It's kind of giving us a thrill at every moment. <laughs> so this is an unreasonable idea, and this is how we are uh, largely in, in material life conducting ourselves, an identity derived through the senses and the attachments that accrue from that and so forth. Now, again, Krishna is addressed here as Rishikesh, means master of the senses. It's a very nice name. It indicates to us that senses have a purpose. And now this kind of makes sense to us, if you will. That's why it's hard to hear about detachment. Because, hey, loving your father seems like a, you know, a good thing to do. Loving your teacher, appreciating your teacher, regarding your teacher, seems like a, you know, it, it's laudable. We can talk about it philosophically and what's wrong with it, how it falls short, and so forth. But then where do we come from that? We come to detachment. We're like in no man's land. We're in some form, of, some state of abstract love, if you will. In other words, we're not involved anymore when we're detached from exploiting. But where are we? Is there anything positive in that? Yeah, as much as there's something positive in zero when compared to negative numbers. You follow me? Zero has some positive content in comparison to negative numbers. Some kind of abstract positive. <laughs> but are there any positive numbers? This is the question to ask. I mean, what are we? If we were a unit of consciousness, and we're moving in the world in pursuit of love and relationships and so forth and so on, and we're told all this is false. Is our whole pursuit false then? We should just realize the folly of love and come to knowledge and sit quietly forever, shanti, 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 peaceful? Or is there any positive content to our being? Do we have a real ego, a real identity? Or is our identity just not being something else? Do you understand? If we kill this false identity based on attachment, where are we then? Well, some people say, where you are then after you kill this false identity is that you're, you're no longer part of this false world of dualities. So you live above duality and everybody's there with you. And there's no duality, so there's nobody else there. <laughs> you're alone. We're all one. But that should be nuanced. The scripture seeks to nuance this oneness, this idea of oneness that underlies the false duality of material existence, the ground of being underneath this uh, goods and bads and happies and sads, that consciousness that we're all part of, that the world of names and forms arrives out of, that being, that becoming comes out of. That's what we are. We're that, yes, but now let's look into that. This is the idea. Look deeply into that. And what we will find is that as a unit of that, expressing, we are expressing ourselves in the material world, we're expressing our self in terms of what's inherent within us. The capacity to love, for example. To be, to know, to love. We have some capacity for this. So, expressing that and developing that, this is the development of the real ego in comparison to the false ego. It requires retiring the false ego, and the false ego will best be retired in the context of cultivating the real ego. So some theoretical knowledge about that is, is useful, if not essential. So the name Rishikesh is important to us because it says to us that Krishna means master of the senses. It means the senses, there's, there's some scope for, for sensual life. 
There's a misuse of the senses. And there's a proper use. Is the proper use to not use them? Doesn't sound like it. That's just what not to do. How to use them? In such a way that they create an attachment, that creates an identity, that fosters an identity that's not false. Is there anything in other words worth being attached to? Yeah. In material life, we feel incomplete, so we attach ourselves to another, and we get some sense of wholeness from that. Now we can say, well, that's a false way of going about it. You're complete in yourself. Yes, true. What are we, then, at being complete in ourselves? Well, we're not matter. So we're not here today or gone tomorrow. We don't die. We don't get old. We don't get sick. We're a unit of consciousness. There's nothing to fear. That sounds pretty whole and uh, pretty, like, secure. Fearless condition is our natural condition. True. But then why are we in the condition that we're in right now? If we're so strong, why are we in the predicament that we're in? The world or an illusion of thinking we need to add something onto our life in order to be complete? So the, the, the reasoning to this is, is that although we're a unit of consciousness that's superior to matter, hmm? not here today and gone tomorrow, like all material manifestations, still we're only a spark of this consciousness. In connection with the vastness of matter, we're prone to be overcome by it. It's like, I've given an example before. The viewer is superior to the television, right? In other words, it takes a viewer to turn on the television and give the television a life. But sometimes the television takes over the life of the viewer. And that's a problem, right? Honey, <laughs> it's time for this. It's time. You just glued to the TV. It can take over your life. So matter has taken over our life. Although we are a unit of consciousness and superior to matter, matter has taken over our life. And we think we are matter, practically. Therefore, we're worried we might not exist at some point because we see all material things at some point disappear. So we're struggling that we don't to overcome the, the threat of non-existence. So this should indicate to us what? It should indicate to us that although we are consciousness and superior to matter, still we're, we're kind of faulty uh, also. We, we have some defect. We're small and prone to this condition. The point is this, that in order to be whole in the full sense, we have to attach ourselves to the source of consciousness. This is what is meant by Krishna, for example. It's a healthy attachment. In material life, we don't feel whole, so we've identified with this bag of matter, so we attach ourselves to something else, we add things onto our life, we try to feel whole. Hmm? Instead of let go of all those things, then you can start to feel that you're whole, it's secure, that you exist forever, there's no death, and so forth and so on. But now, to go to the other side, to use your senses, rather than misuse them. Misusing them by exploiting material things, collecting them, using them for the purpose conceived in my mind, which they're not meant for. Everything's not existing for the purpose that we conceive of in our mind that will make us happy. It's not the purpose of everything. It has its own purpose. Everything has its own life. When we look at the world through the lens of our mind and senses, we take the life out of it. What it could be. What life could be. We take the life out of it. Mind and senses, they're dead things. When we look at life through this filter, it makes everything lifeless. So take off that filter. We got to see, not see through the eyes, hear through the ears, know through the, through the mind, but through yoga to see, to know. Everybody knows yoga means to link, to connect. So to connect to what? Is there something to use our senses in connection with, to apply our senses in relation to, that will create a healthy environment for myself? I'm weak as a soul, therefore I'm in this condition. I'm not weak <laughs> in one sense as a soul, and I feel weak in relation to matter, if I overcome that attachment, I can be strong in one sense, but still I'm prone to this condition. Unless I attach myself to the reservoir of consciousness. Hmm? 
This attachment, just like our material attachment, fosters an identity. So the name Rishikesh means that there's a master of the senses, which means there's a purpose for the senses. So when the senses, Rishikena Rishikesha Sevanam, Bhakti Ruchade, a very nice statement. It's the basis of the whole uh, Siddhanta conclusion of our tradition. Sarvopadi Muktam Nirmalam Rishikena Rishikesha Sevanam, Bhakti Ruchade. The whole of the Chaitanya tradition, given by, voiced by Rupa Goswami, the Abhideya, the, the means, the, the practice of bhakti, it all comes from this one verse. Sarvopadivanirmuktam tatparatvena nirmalam rishikena rishikesha sevanam bhakti ruchite. Rupa said it like this. Why? Anyabhilashita shunyam gyankarmari anabhritam anukulena krishnanu shivanam bhakti ruchite. Same thing. Put it in different words. It comes from this. The word Rishikesh is used there. It says Salvo Padi Muktam. Upadi means the designation. I'm an Indian. I'm American. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm a daughter. I'm a mother. This is Upadi. This is an artificial imposition. I'm not those things. I'm clouded by this imposition. Salvo Padi Muktam. Remove this. All this imp- artificial imposition, mental idea of what I am. That must be removed. On the other side of the equation. Once we remove that upadi, that false identity, that false ego, derived from attachment, in bhakti tradition, the culture, the sadhana, the practice is what? To bring our senses in touch with things in such a way as to see them in relation to God and utilize them for that purpose. Just like we're sitting here and singing. So we're using our senses, our tongue, our ears. But what are we singing? You don't hear it on the radio. That's not usually, that's not that kind of singing. We're a different kind of singing. It has a different effect. We're singing Krishna Nam and Nama Chintamani. Krishna's Chaitanya Rasa Vibraha Puna this name Krishna and Krishna, they are the same. By hearing the sound Krishna and singing the name Krishna, we're using our tongue, we're using our ears, but a different effect is happening than if we use our tongue and ears to sing, you know, whatever. Popular music, we're getting a different result. We're developing attachment to that reservoir of consciousness and that will foster an identity we're using the senses in the service of the master of the senses. This is the idea. So here in this text, this whole idea is given. First, you have to disentangle yourself from your attachment. This is one side of the equation. This is the Vedanta. In the context of bhakti, of developing your real identity, by using the same, going about life the same way that you are, just changing the focus, that's all. Hmm? Instead of the world of your mind being the center and your senses actively pursuing whatever the mind's demands are and so forth, we learn what is pleasing to Krishna, what is not. Those become our happies, those become our sads. Anukul, pratikul. If it's favorable for bhakti, I accept it. But if it's, well, what if it's favorable for bhakti? for devotion, for the culture of love, of God, but it's not favorable to my mind, you understand, or my senses. Like what if it's favorable to rise early in the morning for bhakti and chant the name of Krishna like we do in our tradition on beats, early before the sun gets up. It's favorable for bhakti, but it's not always favorable to the mind or the senses, right? You see, this is how we, we transcend the duality of the world of our mind. We've created goods and bads in our mind, and one of them is, it's not good to get up early. It doesn't feel good. Well, if it doesn't feel good, sometimes you should do it. This is the idea. And sometimes it feels good, and we shouldn't do it, because it's not favorable for bhakti. So by changing the center that we orbit around, Without changing the activities that we're engaged in, practically, all the scope of human activities, this is why bhakti is user-friendly. The whole range of human activities can be applied in bhakti. Singing, chanting, 
when they speak of human activities, even animals can hear. They can hear the name of Krishna. What kind of yoga is that? That even cows can perform it. Like at our ashram, we have cows. They hear the chanting. Their senses are being used and drawn towards the, towards the spiritual center in this way. This fosters a spiritual identity, you see. That's what I mean by user-friendly. All these normal activities, like eating, you know, if you come visit us sometime, or visit our restaurant, Govinda's restaurant, all the food there that's prepared, it's all offered to Krishna through ritual and, and, and so forth in the morning before anybody gets there. Then, served out to everyone. You don't even know it, you're engaged in yoga just by eating there. <laughs> it's a very friendly yoga, you see. The whole scope and range of human activities that we're accustomed to performing, continue to perform them, you just change the center. This is the idea. And gradually then, what we'll see, if we do it right, and the good guidance, we'll see that the first phase of this development of real ego manifests in the false sense of self and the attachment that it's tied to is fading. I'm losing interest. I have a new center now. What's good for my spiritual life, that I accept. What's not favorable for it, I don't accept. I'm no longer living in a duality of goods and bads in my mind. I've got another center. This is the idea. This is what says uh, Krishna has uh, implied here in this verse by stopping the chariot in front of Drona and Bhishma and Sanjaya, who spoke the verse by addressing him as Rishikesh. Are there any questions? Thoughts? Comments? Suggestions? Advice. Here, yeah, open to that. Anything. What's your yeah. Oh, this is a staff. Yeah, it's called Tridanda staff. So, in our uh, lineage, then um, those who accept the uh, it's a it's a type of initiation, third initiation. There's three. They, they accept the staff and certain vows and so forth, and they become teachers. So when they speak, they're supposed to take this, and it's called a danda, which means to chastise. So it's for beating oneself, not others. <laughs> That's what it's for. That's for beating oneself. So that one's body, mind, and words. Body, there's four here. Body, mind, words, and self. All dedicated to, to God. A vow for that, and so... Uh, so he chastises who holds this or she. Their words doesn't allow the word to speak anything but about Krishna. Doesn't allow the the body to be engaged in anything but Krishna's service. Or the mind do anything but think about Krishna. This is the idea. Um, when you see somebody with this, then you know you can talk to him about Krishna. So thank you for that question. It's made out of uh, bamboo rods, actually, and hemp. You want one? <laughs> Later. <laughs> Later, okay. We're, we're offering them. <laughs> yeah, we, have a, we grow our own bamboo at the monastery also. So it's readily available. No shortage there. Yeah, a very nice group of listeners. There's a little bit some technical terms in the, in the talk, and some of you may not be familiar with them. At the same time, some people come often, and, and some people are even initiated members of the tradition, so I try to speak in such a way everyone will get something. And uh, be too low parts of it for some people and too high parts of it for other people, but uh, some benefit for everyone, especially me. So what else? Any other thought? Don't be shy. Yes? When you were speaking about letting go, thought came to me that even in, uh, in life, in our ordinary life, material life, children, as they grow up, they, they let go of you. Begin letting go of you. <laughs> <laughs> Read the writing on the wall. Right. They're yeah. going, they're letting go and, you know, they're going to start their own family or whatever. Even though they just can't wait to get out of the house. Yeah, so I was like this. There's letting go. So we all know. It's, it's a fact of life. But like you said, what uh, when you let go of that, then what do you become attached to? 
when when the kids let go? Yeah, when you let go, you let letting go of your what if you, what do you become attached to? You, you take something else out. Yeah. Well, it depends. I think um, it's an interesting point because oftentimes when children begin to let go, if you will, as you put it, they're really in, in search of more meaning that you're not able to provide, or at least they're not able to hear it from you. <laughs> they, they later realize, oh, my father had a lot of wisdom, actually, or my mother. Yeah, usually, uh, at least on some level. But um, they're kind of in search of, you know, of, of an identity and a self and so forth. So if they uh, get in touch with the right like a source of knowledge then uh, that's what happened to me uh, you know I did that and came in touch with a good source of knowledge so I became who I am and they become then obviously what they become in touch with so I said before that life here kind of runs on two tracks giving up and accepting so boga and tiagda taking and, and leaving so while they're leaving they're taking from somewhere else. So it's their tag, their apparent renunciation, inside of it is vogue, is, is enjoyment or exploitation. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, they're not really giving up. They, we embrace things and then they don't satisfy us, so then we give them up. And then we go back again. Mm-hmm. Hmm? Like when I was a kid, you know, we used to chew bubble gum. A little worn out, kids would put it under the desk, you know. <laughs> then with something, nothing else to do, they'd pick it up again. And then, <laughs> that's called Bog and Tiag. That's how the world works. <laughs> rather crude example, but something from our, my childhood. I didn't do that. <laughs> Other kids did that. So, what else? The real self, the real ego is the antithesis of the false ego. The false ego is a taker. It's a ruse. It's a guy, in the guise of giving and loving, it's taking. It's taking because in that identity we feel incomplete. When we identify with matter, we feel incomplete. We feel like we might die at some time. Right? In fact, it's sure. <laughs> so we have a set, we should have a sense of that. And so we are on the take. We need. We need to get shelter. We need to protect ourselves. We need to eat. We need money. We need security. We need relationships and, and so forth. So we're on the take. The material life, material ego is about taking. It's done in nice ways, polite ways, and it's done in crude ways. But we're all doing it. As much as we've identified with matter and our sense of self is derived from that identification and we're attached materially, we're takers, we're exploiters. So, if that's the nature, basically, a basic sense of the false ego, then you can understand the real ego is the antithesis of that. It's a giver. From being a taker, you know, to being a lover, this is the idea. Real ego is about loving, about giving. So, first part of giving is giving up. (laughs) (laughs) Giving up taking. That's what he has to do. So, what else? Any other thought? Yes? Animal process can also be just in our interactions with other like-minded souls. I assume that's how you feel. The giving up, you mean? Um, or? Taking in a spiritual sense. Because to give, you have to give to someone. Right. Someone has to receive graciously. Yeah. So, it also becomes... Part of the process, I mm-hmm. Yes. Taking. Taking medicine. <laughs> and if you take the medicine, you find, oh, the medicine becomes food, actually. Beginning, it's medicine. Guru says, take this. And, oh, it's like medicine. But in time, it becomes food. You live on that. So, yes. Taking what's given by spiritual people is really about giving. It's about giving to yourself. Like people say, you know, hey, be good to yourself. Yeah, you should. Be good to yourself. Give to yourself. And take such a good thing that's coming down. Take advantage of it. Receive it. Take it. 
you begin then to give to yourself. So then yourself grows. And as yourself grows, then you can give also. So there's a stage of taking, but if you look carefully at it, it's actually giving. It's loving. To accept. Guhyamakyati pichati. Vidati patagunati. Guhyamakyati pichati. Bhumte bojatate chaiva. Priti lakshanam. So to take from a sadhu, from a saint, that is also giving. It is also love, pretty lakshanam. These are pretty lakshan. Lakshan means characteristic, symptom of love, the symptom of love. If a saintly person says, take it, take it, that's love. You say, no, I'm not taking. <laughs> it's a good idea, but you've, at that time, you've, uh, it's, it's out of place. Take for yourself, for yourself, not for your false self. Material taking means taking in such a way as to foster my false identity. And taking from saintly persons good advice, their kindness, and taking advantage of that. That's yourself. That's building yourself. Because why? <laughs> what is that self made out of? That's made out of Kripa. We're made of that. We're made of the mercy of God. The real ego is made of that. So take it and you see you're giving to yourself. That you can be greedy for. Greed has its application also. What else? Any other thought? Yes? Um, I had a teacher who um, one time was talking about the ego and, um, and using Krishna saying the name of Krishna itself also means pushful. And this idea that there's the ego, the false ego, and the more authentic, authentic ego that agitate towards something uh, more authentic, the self, the soul, the enlightenment, whatever word you want to put there. So it seems like almost that the the inauthentic self that you're talking about, the lower ego, or the false ego, has an absolute place. It's absolutely miserable. But, yeah, no. <laughs> because without that, that almost that, that identification of what we are not, you know, we wouldn't be able to see something else. So, but, but that is um, relative at the same time, because... Once you can see, then, however useful seeing what you're not was, it no longer becomes useful. Do you understand? In other words, what you're saying is there's some value. If I understand you correctly, there's some value in the false ego when it's seen as what not to be. And that's in a stage of sadhana or practice that may be helpful to us because negative impetus or bad example is as good as a good example to know what not to do and what not to be, that's part of the teaching. Anvayad itarata, both sides we shall learn from. But once you've seen and learned and fully entered your real ego, let's say, the real identity, then teaching is over. So the usefulness of that is retired. And for that matter, it doesn't exist anymore either. You follow me? Yeah, but I just... Please do. How? Because I think the ego, the, the false ego, is so tenacious, mm -hmm. and especially in the world we live in, mm -hmm. um, it's it's always almost. And, and I think to the extent we see it, it almost lashes out more. But can it ever be retired? Is there enlightenment? Is there a falsity in, in enlightenment? Well, I'm not enlightened, so. I don't well, no, know but I know that. But but think about it. And what I'm saying is that. What you're saying is that the false ego is tenacious, and so it's it's always there, nagging you, and it's always something to learn from, hmm? right? What I think what I'm saying is I, I think that that there could be a shift in how we perceive it. That instead of perceiving it as being good or bad, mm -hmm. positive, negative, false, true, mm -hmm. that we enter into a more harmonious relationship with it, knowing that it is what it is. Its nature is to be that, and that. Our nature around it is, is to have a, a, a different relationship with it instead of rejecting it or saying, you know, 
going into battle with it. What would that different relationship with it be, for example? Non-attachment. So, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Then. Yeah. So if you, but if it is based on attachment, and your orientation to it is to be not attached, then you are kind of uprooting it, really. You're entering into your real identity then. That's what it sounds like. Anyway, interesting topic. What did you just say again? <laughs> I said that, that if, you, if you interact with the false ego, which is based on attachment, if you act in the world with detachment, then you're uprooting the attachment that the false ego is derived from. What you're talking about, I think, is to work with the false ego in such a way that it, you want to say it merges or something like that, or it just be, it, it no longer becomes false. It, when I ask you how to do that, you say, well, with detachment, and to be in the world, but to be detached, something like that. But if you're detached, the whole false ego is based on attachment, so you're, you're, you're actually uprooting it. I mean, we are in the world, yeah, and we should live with, with knowledge and detachment. That's a fact. And that's what I mean by fostering a real sense of self, an authentic self that can be a giver. So I don't, you know, so I don't think we disagree. I don't think I disagree with your teacher. He and I should talk. <laughs> so, all right, we talked for some time. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I. Yeah. You might be my teacher too. You're one of them tonight, no doubt. So, I have no objection to that. So, I anyway, I appreciate all your your uh, attention and questions and interest. Thank you very much. <laughs>